Welcome to another episode of Young Professionals in Energy podcast. My name is Mark Heineman, and I'm with Franklin Mountain Energy, and I'm sitting here with my two co-hosts, Jake Adamson and Ellen Scott. Yeah, so this is an exciting episode. This is part two of our experience in the Invenergy office here in Denver, Colorado. We are fortunate enough to interview Saxon McKinvin previously, and he did a fantastic job. And now we've got Julia Kimmerly and Allie James with us. Julia, Allie, how are you guys doing? Great. How yeah, are you? Doing well. Yeah, fantastic. I guess do you get, let's just dive right into it. We typically start by having our guests give a little bit of an overview of their background and what they do with their company. So let's dive right in. Sure thing. Julia? Yeah. Um, my name is Julia Kimmerly, and I am a senior manager of renewable development at Invenergy. little history. I grew up in New England, went to school in Boston, spent some time in San Francisco, um, and then came to Denver. I was working for a carbon capture and sequestration startup very cool experience. I won't bore you with too many of the details, but gave me some insight into the oil and gas world when the company pivoted to enhanced oil recovery, and then um, found my way into the renewable energy industry with Invenergy and have been here for about three and a half years. That's great. How about you, Allie? Yeah, my name is Allie James. I am originally from the East Coast and then went to see Boulder. Scope Yeah, Scope and during that time, I actually interned at Invenergy, and then I came back to work full-time and have been on the development side of things ever since. Yeah, so I think we got a pretty good overview from Saxon about a lot of the projects that Invenergy does. Um, sounds like wind is primarily the, the biggest aspect of the portfolio. So let's, um, let's get into development. What Let's... Just walk us through the cycle of a typical wind project. You know, how does it start? How long does it take? How, who are you dealing with? You know, your landowners, your permits. Can you just kind of walk us through a little bit? Sure. So I'll take you first from basically our job as developers is to take projects from their conception up through the point of being construction ready. There are other folks at our company and in the, in the industry who do the construction portion of it and then the asset management of projects once they're operational. So the beginning of a project um, really comes in terms of understanding where we want a project, where we think it'll be successful. So we do what we call prospecting. Um, and then we move into a land acquisition phase. We also do a number of studies um, on the environmental side, on the engineering side, and then kind of move into our, our permitting and our kind of later engineering or later design phase. And then we kick it off to our construction team. Um, generally, a project, I mean, that whole process that Julia described would take anywhere from two to 10 plus years. Um, it really varies based on the project and the hurdles associated with it. Yeah. And what would you say would be the biggest challenge when making sure these sites are construction ready? Personally, I think it's the balance of all of the different aspects. So I think this is true of other kind of development roles, you know, in other industries, but we are looking not only at, you know, environmental interests and factors, our engineering interests and, you know, costs, whether it's materials or labor. We also have permitting that we have to consider that might change based on your region or your county or your state. Um, and then you have land. At the end of the day, we require land to do what, what we do. And the constraints on that land vary drastically across the country or across whatever area you're operating in. 
And would you guys typically own the land or partner with the landowner and have a lease agreement? We typically work through lease agreements. Um, we have something like over a million acres under lease. Um, we have a number wow. of, <laughs> yes. That's, that's a lot of acres. <laughs> we do, yeah. So I, we work nationally, internationally as well. And we, we work to partner with landowners. At the end of the day, we aren't looking to own land. We're not a real estate company. We're right. here to provide renewable energy at affordable rates. And oftentimes, particularly with wind, we're able to build projects on land. And then a large majority of that land is still available for the landowner to continue to use either in the way they were using before or as they please. So by that, you mean that a farmer will still be able to farm and and, and plant their crops up to kind of where your wind pads are those are things that you take into account exactly yep and so there's there's something like one to two percent of you know the area that that you might see you know from the first wind turbine on one end all the way to the other one really only one to two percent of that area is actually taken out of production we have farmers that whether they're you know having their cows graze right up to the edge of the pad whether they are still doing their irrigation landowners can continue to use the land if they want to and some of them choose to either just take the money yeah exactly (laughs) is it enough for some people to sort of live on i guess that kind of depends on how much land you're leasing totally yep totally depends on on where you are on what the landowner was using the land for you know grazing is very different than dry land farming is different than irrigated farming um in areas where it rains more you know you're able to make a lot more are you growing cotton are you growing milo um, so there's a lot of yeah different factors. How close to you are are you to cities? Yeah, and I would say too the for a lot of our landowners they want to continue farming and ranching, and so the lease payments on the turbines it's a steady rate that they'll receive over the course of you know the life of the wind yeah. turbine. Um, whereas the commodity markets will fluctuate for yeah, it's kind crop. of a, a stapled hedge. Right. that they can use to help help sustain their and grow their business, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's diversification for them. Definitely. And how long are these leases typically? Typically 20 to 50 year lease mm-hmm. terms. Um, and that's about how long the life of a turbine is as well. Has anything changed in the technology of wind turbines that make them longer or more durable or anything? Like, have you guys seen a change? Yeah, definitely. And I think newer technologies are more efficient as well. So in some of the older projects, um, we've been able to repower those turbines with more efficient generators. Yeah, the the wind industry has gotten much more mature. I mean, really, I'd say over the past 15 years, right, way before I was in it, um, to the point where turbines are are larger, they're more efficient, um, and the technology is, is, I'll say, cheaper. Yeah, we talked a little bit with Saxon about the levelized cost of electricity and how how much it has decreased for wind. So I guess then from your side of things, does that mean that you're spacing your turbines further apart, that you're using fewer turbines for the same amount of generation, or that you're just able to create just bigger and better projects all around? All of the above, Mm -hmm. I think. Yep. Yeah, I I think the – so generally with our larger turbines, they're – becoming taller and the blades are becoming longer and that's helpful uh, for a couple of reasons one is as you get higher your wind speeds get faster and it's actually at the cubic rate so it's not just you know they're getting slightly faster but right the, the power outputs a cubic function yeah. thank you yes yeah. um, and so that any 
incremental height that we're able to gain, you know, gives us a big reward in terms of the electricity that we're able to generate. And then with with that, you're also looking to get the largest swept area. So for a, if, if you imagine kind of the area, the circle that a wind turbine's blades would make when it turns, the larger that area is, the more wind you are kind of harnessing. And so those two together, longer blades, and then that combined with having a higher rotor height um, or yeah, hub height allows us to really harness much more wind with the same with one turbine, which mm-hmm. would then either decrease the number of turbines you have in a project or mean that you can create more larger projects, more megawatts. Yeah. <laughs> and the turbine placement, I mean, that's it to, to the typical bystander, it may seem trivial or, you know, they just went out and placed turbines in a grid pattern. But when I was in my graduate program at CU, uh, it was a big engineering problem, right? Where they actually design and try and model the fluid flow that's going past turbines, and right, because you want kind of a consistent, Absolutely. consistent flow past each of the turbines. And if as soon as you've got wind going past the front row, then that makes it more difficult or a different wind fluid profile, fluid flow profile for the second row, right? That's right. Yep. And I'm I'm not a wind engineer, but if you imagine um, a string of turbines, so a number of turbines in a row. Um, if the wind is blowing kind of across all of those, so it hits all of those turbines at the same time, um, the, the fluid flow over those, it's just like a wake behind a boat. Uh, so it disturbs the wind for a certain distance, and then it'll go back to your laminar flow where you can then harness as much from it again. So the spacing in the direction of the wind is different than the spacing kind of crosswise to the wind. Not to get too nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love being nerdy about it. I think that's a really cool technical problem that it's, I mean, it's fun to solve. Fun for me to think about at least. So For sure. Well, and I think you hit on, on something too, is that there's, there's a lot of thought that goes into how wind turbines are placed. And it's not just what you see on, you know, a piece of land. There's a, there are many other factors that go into that, whether it's from fluid flows or maybe there are resources nearby or there's landowner considerations and all of those permitting, you know, aspects, all of those come together to mean a very kind of detailed and, and highly optimized layout that our engineers provide. So there's some other aspects about your job that you think either the public may overlook or just sort of misunderstood besides the fact that these projects are complicated and the grid pattern is is (laughs) more than just arbitrarily throwing turbines out there i think that's the that's the biggest thing most of the time folks that i talk to have a specific interest whether it's because they live nearby or they heard about the project on you know in the newspaper um they are interested in a specific resource, you know, whether it's environmental or something else in the area, we're balancing a number of those different, basically all of those different considerations. And while if there's only one thing that you care about, you may be able to make some adjustments for that, more often than not, an adjustment will end up impacting some other consideration that we've been balancing all along. Right, trying to make everyone happy, right? It's a difficult, difficult thing to do, especially with a project that size um, and the amount of people that could potentially be influenced by it. And still be in business. I guess thinking there's a lot of stakeholders That's in these right. projects, right? There's a lot of stakeholders in these projects. And uh, 
some of them are more surprising than you'd think, right? Where you guys are generating clean energy uh, or renewable energy for society, which is awesome, but there's perhaps still some pushback, right? Um, do you guys run into a lot of resistance when in the development process? Yeah, I think it varies. Um, to Julia's point, our job is a balancing act of yeah. sorts. Um, and so we're just looking to coordinate with all of those different concerns. There are certainly projects that get pushed back from an environmental front. We like to do those studies kind of on the front end and, and account for that in our design. Um, What's one of the biggest pushbacks? Because, I mean, the three of us are kind of in oil and gas, and Jake works for an environmental firm that regulates or helps oil and gas companies uh, stay in compliance from environmental issues. Do you guys have, uh, I guess, a topic for environmental impact that, well, I guess I'll just ask, or can I ask, one of the pushbacks for wind is uh, harming bird wildlife, right? Killing a lot of birds. How does the industry deal, deal with that? Yeah, I, I figured that's what you were going to bring up. Uh, so the wind industry has gotten a bad rap for kind of bird fatalities. Yeah. Um, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, basically, early early wind projects were cited perhaps without taking into consideration or without the knowledge of some of the migratory pathways that birds take. So Invenergy, as a company, we follow the wind energy guidelines. Those are put up by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and they lay out a five-tiered process for how to characterize and react to the avian resource near or at a project site. So the first thing is to go and kind of do a desktop study based on what is available, the information that is available. And then from that, there are on-site surveys that we do that look at the bird resources. As you, as you can imagine, you know, throughout even a project, you might see different bird use, but definitely at a state level and at a national level, there are areas where you have whooping cranes. There are areas where you have bald and golden eagles. There are areas where you don't and you have ground land birds. I'm speaking a little out of turn here. I'm not an environmentalist <laughs> or an environmental specialist, I should say. The the sage grouse <laughs> is one that we sure. run into a, a lot in our industry. So Absolutely. yeah, that's yep. one of those ground birds. And the lesser prairie chicken right. or the greater. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The lesser. We, yeah. We've got the lesser prairie chicken yes. in New Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So kind of through that process, we identify uh, species that may see an impact to their habitat and work to address that. We work very closely with state level and kind of local environmental interests, whether that's Fish and Wildlife Service, whether that's the local, you know, Parks and Rec Department or state level Parks and Rec, um, or even local interests. We have kind of worked one-on-one -on -one or in a group with a number of different NGOs that have interests protecting certain bird species to look to find a solution that allows for the growth and the development of renewable energy, which ultimately should be helping to support those species, while not kind of adversely impacting those species to a great extent. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So, it, I mean, there's obviously a well thought out process that has gone into okay we're, we have a site selection and we're not just going to go out and get a permit to kill a bunch of birds right we want to minimize the impact uh that you know, your project's going to have that makes a lot of sense 
Are there any rules or regulations or kind of guidelines about homes or commercial buildings or anything from the like people side you you expanded a lot on the environmental and the animal side because the other kind of pushback i've heard from wind energy is that if that turbine casts a shadow in my house then i'm going to go crazy with how how frequently i'm seeing that light and dark and shadow go in and out so yeah what are what are some of the rules for people and and homes and and buildings so there's a number of different kind of ways to approach that i guess and we've seen that typically wind regulations are seen at the county level. Some states also have regulations that impact different energy production. Um, Oftentimes, zoning um, and other kind of, yeah, county level matters, they're handled by the county. Uh, One way that counties have handled that is to put in a certain distance that you have to be from residents. Some counties, I believe, have specific, they have specified kind of this shadow Flicker, mm. which is what it's called. Flicker. Um, Sorry, I didn't know the technical term. Yep, you're fine. Um, they have put you know a number around that. There's many places that don't have anything in place, so it kind of depends on the community and what they're looking for. Um, we are always looking to enter a community and stay there for a long period of time, right? 20, 30 years, and at the end of the day we're not looking to have folks who aren't comfortable with what's around them. So Mm -hmm. there's oftentimes conversations that we have, we show folks, you know, operating wind projects either nearby or that we have to help them understand what it looks like to live in a wind farm. So there are really just county, county by county regulations. It's not like one state has a wind energy regulation is that I mean, here in Colorado, you know, or in yeah, the, the oil and gas side, it's, yeah, I mean, yeah. We, we have state rules and regulations, but it sounds like maybe that's federal that just, rules. Right, that's yeah, true. Yeah. And so, well, and that, in Colorado, they want local rules too. Exactly, that, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. that's the new like thing. Like municipal that we're doing. or. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there, I mean, there are at times municipal regulations as well. It's very different, I think, depending on where you are in the country. I'm sure that's similar in oil and Absolutely. gas. Mm-hmm. Um, we work a lot in the West, uh, which tends to be a little more cowboy country. Fewer rules. Fewer rules, yep. Um, so it is very much county by county most of the time. Wow. That's That's not all of the time. And it means that if you have a project that goes into multiple counties, you could be dealing with different asks in different counties. I think one thing that one of the hardest things to deal with is when you have uncertainty in those regulations, right? So it's one thing to to not have a regulation around something. There's another thing to have a regulation and know what it is and say this is what it means to comply. Mm -hmm. And then there's a bucket of unknowns, whether that is regulatory uncertainty because it could be changing. So the lesser prairie chicken that could become federally listed at any point and was listed and then was taken off the list. Yeah. Or it is a regulation that was written, but it wasn't written very clearly. And so sometimes at county levels, we will see something. And what does it mean to comply with what they've stated? Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that's just kind of one of the, the harder challenges. So, Julia, as someone with experience in both uh, renewable and oil and gas, uh, can you compare and contrast some of the differences between the two industries? Sure. 
I would say I probably had an unorthodox experience in the oil and gas industry. So, okay. I, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. As I said, I worked for a, a startup and we kind of shifted from CCS to enhanced oil recovery using industrial CO2. So that is only one little kind of window into your world. But there are certainly aspects that are very similar. And then there are aspects that are quite different. One that is similar is on the development side, big capital projects. There are certain things that just translate pretty well between them. And I'm sure as part of the development process that we laid out, some of that, you know, you can see parallels to in terms of kind of oil and gas exploration. You're looking for an area that has a resource. You don't always know where the resource is. You have some maps or some data points that help you, but that's about all you have. And then you have to actually be able to get there. And then there's all of this regulatory or permitting, you know, that you deal with. And then there's a number of different studies that you do. There's landowner relations. There's kind of community, you know, benefits as well as kind of outreach. So all of that I got a taste of in my last job and then have fleshed out or learned much more about in this current job. One thing that's very different is oil and gas is commodities driven, whereas the electricity industry is not, or it is not our kind of driving force. So we typically look to enter into long-term power purchase agreements. Those are 10, 15, 20 years long. That means we're looking for a high level, a higher level of certainty up front. And it also means that we then have that to count on later. So it goes both ways, but that was that was something different for me as I was not kind of tracking, you know, what is the price today kind of thing. And then we also have to have a little more certainty before we take the plunge because yeah. it's a longer commitment. Absolutely. Kind of a lower cost of capital model, similar to the midstream versus in the upstream space. We need a higher or we can we have a higher cost of capital and need a higher return. Right. Sure. Have either of you seen a project from start to finish in your development teams or are they just on too long of a cycle that you're just always bouncing around to other projects and never fully getting to see them get to the construction phase? It depends on what you mean from start to finish, Mm -hmm. but I recently stopped working on a project that I started working on about three years ago. And that project when I started working on it, it was very young. We were in the land acquisition phase. We had, you know, some early data. And then just about three months ago, we closed on that project and it is going into construction. It, I think, technically started construction maybe a couple weeks ago, going to the groundbreaking next next week. So Oh nice. So you get to you get to go out and see the groundbreaking and say, Hey, this was what I worked on. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm very I'm very excited for it. I'm still like you know, waiting for it to be operational because then I'll, I think, finally, you know, breathe a sigh of relief. Um, but my work is done, and um, and it and it feels great. Um, there's other many other projects that um, I have touched, whether it's you know at the beginning or at the end, that either haven't gone to construction or you know there's kind of every different iteration you can you can imagine. And Allie's on the other side of that. (laughs) Yeah, I am on the other side. So I've been involved in a number of prospecting efforts, both for wind and solar projects, um, but have not yet gotten to that point of getting to kind of cut the ribbon and be excited about a project being uh, complete and operational. But it will be an exciting time. 
So we talked a little bit about the technology factors, a little bit about some of the political factors. Um, are there any other kind of recent changes in some of these factors, maybe a commercial factor um, that have made your jobs either significantly easier or significantly harder? It's a very open-ended question, <laughs> yeah. so feel free to yeah. take it wherever you want. Yeah. I mean, as you've said, the technology technology has become much more efficient, which is always helpful. Um, our industry over the, past, or the, over the last several years um, has been fortunate enough to take advantage of tax credits that come from the federal level. Those are in the stages of rolling off, and it looks like permanently. We will see if that's the case. Yeah, are you guys prepared for that? That's something that goes into your new project planning right now? It is. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and I guess I'm, I haven't, I wasn't around for the history of this, like some other people have been, but my understanding is that in the past, you know, it was a little bit of a boom and bust cycle in the sense that there was a tax credit and then it was gone and then it was reinstated and then it was gone. And this time they structured it such that there, it's a ramping down effect, which right. the point was to allow for a final kind of phase out. Um, and that ramp has started depending on what clock you look at. Um, and we don't necessarily expect it to be reinstated as perhaps was the, the thought or the hope previously. So that definitely drives, drives the industry to some extent. Um, we've, the advances that we've seen in our turbine technology and across the industry in terms of our construction knowledge and in all of the other parts that go into a, a wind project, we've seen those advances kind of keep par with what we're expecting for the tax credit phase out so that we're not expecting to see some sort of cliff mm -hmm. that perhaps was one time what we thought we would see when, a, when the tax credit would be rolled off. Allie, any other comments on some of the recent changes that you've seen in your limited amount of time here at Invenergy? Yeah, I think sort of to Julia's point, just in general with policy changing, the uncertainty in that can be really interesting. Like she said, we're looking to sign power purchase agreements for several years, and we're looking to project plan for several years. And so having certainty around tax policy or other regulations is just really important and, and can get interesting. Having certainty in business always makes it easier to do business. Yes, yeah. definitely. Absolutely. Well, cool, guys. We've got questions that we ask most or all of our guests. Do we want to start diving into some of those? Sure. Jake? Uh, yeah, I'll start with Allie. What inspired you to enter your aspect of the energy industry? Sure. I think originally, you know, in college, renewables was something that was really interesting to me. And when I started interning first with a hydroelectric power company and then with Invenergy, it felt like a space that there was a lot to learn. And that was kind of exciting. And, you know, everything was different. Everything was changing. And there was no two days were going to be the same. And that has proven true, certainly, in my couple years here. But yeah, it was just kind of a lot, a new space that there was a lot going on and a lot of exciting things happening. So now you're saying the uncertainty is fun. <laughs> Some types of uncertainty are fun. <laughs> I definitely think uncertainty is fun. <laughs> it's boring without it. Mm -hmm. I've already spoken a little bit about my my 
path here. I've always been interested in reducing carbon emissions. I don't know exactly when it started. I remember marching in some sort of parade in high school. I don't know if I knew what I was marching for. Um, And then in college, I was part of a very cool program that happened to be that year trying to lower carbon emissions to a safe level, in quotes, whatever that was. So that kind of started my interest. Um, I was very curious about carbon sequestration as an option to realize that carbon you know, kind of difference with existing technology. And then, you know, the the experience that I had there led me to find Invenergy, which is just more of a, it's part of the renewable energy industry that's more established at this point. I guess, can you comment on the carbon capture and the sequestration or just How kind so? of your, your opinion about if that part of the energy industry is going to continue to grow or if more companies are going to invest in the technology or if there can be other incentives? I do think that it will continue to be explored and I hope that folks are able to make it cost competitive. I think it depends, it relies upon a carbon tax, which may or may not happen and if it doesn't, then it will never make sense. You have to price the commodity somehow. Otherwise, why why is anyone going to capture it and and try and sequester it? Unless they're using it for enhanced oil recovery. Right, I was going to say, we just don't need that much CO2. I mean, there's only so many paintball guns and and (laughs) sodas that are carbonated. Kegs. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, So that's, yeah, that's one piece of it. I guess I hope that we, personally, we move to an economy or an area where we are valuing our carbon and that would then kind of trigger some sort of carbon tax or cap and trade or whatever it is that would then make carbon capture and sequestration cost competitive on on some level. The one thing I'll say is there's two main CCS technologies. One is where you are kind of point source capture. So you're working off of something that is actively emitting CO2. And the other is where you take it out of the air. And there's been press recently on some companies doing air capture. This is I don't want to like speak too much because I haven't been in the industry recently, but it just seems to me like the lowest hanging fruit has got to be capturing CO2 when it's at a 40% concentration rather than when it's at a 0.00 whatever yeah. concentration. Yeah. At 400 parts per million? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 420 rather, now maybe? Yeah. Rather than uh, 30,000 or 40,000 parts per million? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Can, uh, can you guys share some advice for young professionals who might want to follow in your footsteps? Allie, it sounds like an internship was pretty valuable for you, and clearly you must have impressed them to get <laughs> hired on with a real job. You, can you share some pieces of advice? Sure. Yeah, I think my advice would just be to try different things. I mean, for me, I'm not sure you know, starting college, I'm not sure where I thought I would be at this point in my life or what I'd be doing, but it wasn't this. Um, But I tried it and I definitely liked it. And yeah, I would say my advice is just to try different things and see where it takes you. That sounds like great advice because how do you know if you don't know what's out there? And maybe you find out that you hate it and then it's off your list and try something else. I'll actually piggyback off of that. I, I didn't know what development was before I started working here. And I had done it a little bit in, in the oil and gas industry, but, you know, I was technically an engineer. And so what is development, right? It's this ethereal thing. It's not something you learn in school. It's, I don't, I, perhaps in some, a, a few kind of targeted programs. 
for me, my advice would be to, this sounds really kind of dorky. I don't know. I'm like, it's like a mom thing to say, or maybe more of a dad thing stereotypically, to be more like to hone your, your critical thinking skills and your problem solving skills. That to me is what is at the heart of the development world. It's never, no two days are alike. You're not going to have a procedure that you can follow and and check all the boxes. You always have to be looking out for something that you weren't expecting. Yeah, I think that's great advice to be able to think through a problem versus looking at a sheet to tell you exactly how you should solve a problem. Are there any industry trends that are most relevant to your job and do any keep you up at night? So as I said before, I don't think we're tied to a commodity the same way as other industries like oil and gas are. I, I wouldn't say there's there's something like that that keeps me up at night. I'll say I think it's regulatory uncertainty on a number of different levels yeah. that is what can have the largest impacts, right? We have an election. Maybe it's not it's not here for another year, but the political climate absolutely you know rolls down to the everyday that we experience in our job. Yeah, you guys keep you, – you have mentioned several times the kind of political uncertainty. Are there any communities or states that have particularly rapidly changing or uncertain political environments or it's sort of yeah, similar the across space. the board? Yeah, I mean are there, are there certain communities where you're really paying attention and then other communities or states where you're like, all right, like we're, we're pretty certain here. We, we feel confident in the price and the, um, and the, the projects that we're doing there because – I'll just say that in the oil and gas industry, Colorado is kind of that hotbed where things are rapidly changing and all eyes are on us to see how we're responding here. So is there a Colorado of Of renewable development in either of the areas that you guys work in or just not not at all? Maybe it's maybe it's not something that exists in your space. I, I do. I don't think there is a Colorado equivalent for the oil and gas industry. I mean, for wind, mm-hmm. I, I think that that is maybe somewhat of a unique situation. There's definitely a wide variety of levels of regulation, and very generally, the East Coast being more regulation heavy and the West being less. Once you get to the West Coast, maybe that picks up again. There's kind of an area in the Midwest where parts of that kind of have more uncertainty. And then I think it also depends on how long wind has been in an area. In certain areas, if there have been wind projects for 10 years, either regulations might be much more developed or they're developing now. So all of those factors kind of come together. There are absolutely kind of specific counties and probably some specific states where we're seeing much more uncertainty say, this year as opposed to three years ago or five years ago or five years from now. But I don't think there is one state that everybody is looking to to set the course. We talked a little bit with Saxon about transmission and how it's a big uh, player in how economic wind will be to develop in the future. Sure. With the two primary electricity markets being the West Coast and the East Coast and right, you know, all of the wind resources generally in the middle of the country. But there's also a tremendous amount of wind resource offshore. Yeah. Right? Do you guys see offshore uh, wind projects uh, growing over the next decade? Because in my mind, it, it's cheaper to lay uh, a transmission line on the ocean floor 
uh, to the coast than it might be from Kansas to Georgia, right? Sure. Yeah. I I think offshore is a different beast entirely it, 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 in a Has good way. Has Energy, I guess, invested in any offshore projects? I don't believe that we have any okay. operational offshore projects. We have primarily been... I don't even know how you say it, terrestrial. <laughs> <laughs> Land-based? Land-based. Yeah, yeah. Land-based. yeah. Our, um, yeah our, our bread and butter is in, is in land-based wind, really in the United States. And we have branched out from that in a, in a few different ways, and particularly into solar and then with battery storage kind of coming up. I, I do think that offshore presents a new and exciting opportunity. Honestly, I don't know how it balances economically or in other ways with land-based wind farms. The turbines are much larger. Yeah. They also are much more expensive and have to be on a moving surface or at least something that's moving a lot faster than the earth. So it's a, I, I hope that we are able to kind of fully take advantage of all of the wind resources that we have and, perhaps Saxon said this, the high wind resource areas that are close to load and are close to free transmission are becoming fewer and farther between. Right. So we are we are having to be more creative in how we bring the great wind resource to the folks who want and need it. Cool. Uh, if our listeners want to get a hold of you, check the show notes for uh, Ali and Julia's email addresses. So. Guys, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to chat with us. Uh, any last closing thoughts for our listeners? No, thanks for having us. It's uh, it's a it's a great industry, and as I said, I didn't know it existed before I got here. So if you're listening and haven't heard about it before and are curious, you know, do do some research, reach out, see what it's about. Awesome. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.